Listeners, lovely, hey. beautiful, beautiful, special listeners. We love you. You're very special. We love you, crackers. <laughs> oh, God. You know what we mean. S- the spine crackers. People who spine crack the spines cracker. of people books because they it. read them so closely and in depth. Cairo people practitioners. <laughs> yes. The Cairo practitioners. Okay. Cairo Wonderful. Hey, welcome to another episode of Spine Crackers. I'm your host, Thank Matthew. You here. I'm your other host, Paul. And I'm your third and final host, Gabe. And together we comprise the entirety of the show you are watching, the three legs that that (laughs) allow this beautiful joint endeavor to stand proudly and uh, provide you with quality, long-form literary analysis and entertainment. Deep dives, baby. Deep dives. Uh, Informal live discussions. Uncut and raw. <laughs> grown that, out of a clip that chat. <laughs> grown out of a, a wholesome quarantine book club between exactly. three dudes. That's right. Uh, and uh, today we are going to be talking about a book that uh, our very own Gabriel has chosen. So we'll let him take it away and describe what he's picked. Yeah. So um, the book that I chose for today is called "The Museum of Unconditional Surrender," and it's written by. <coughs> Dubravka, Dubravka Ugresic. Nice. Um, A lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. That no? was good. I thought. I mean, I was gonna. I was like baklava. So <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's croissant. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Dubravka uh, Ugresic. Um, who is a um, Yugoslavian writer, uh, and that sort of term obviously sort of becomes central to the novel um, because it's it's about um, this was uh, published I, by the way. Let's do all that uh, all that good stuff. This was in, uh, t- uh, originally in in whatever language they spoke in Yugoslavia, which I think there was a language, maybe Armenian or something. I don't know. 1996, original publication, um, mm. English translation, 99. Um, so, uh, again, she's a Yugoslavian author, um, and this novel is, you know, basically, I, I would say that it's a kind of a fictionalized autobiography, sort of, right? It's such a, it's such a, a well, I mean, it's very intentionally uh, this collection and agglomeration of a bunch of different things. Right. Uh, which is, yeah, I, her approach to autobiography, which she really, like, voices a lot of um, hesitance about as a, as a genre, I think, yep. through just the sheer fact of what she's decided to do in lieu of, of a traditional biography. 
it's really cool. It is really cool. Yeah, so it's like <laughs> a it's it's sort of an account of, um, you know, yeah, I, I, like as Matt said, it's a very kind of, um, it's an agglomeration, it's a mishmash, it's a hodgepodge. It's there are sort of bits of her memories of childhood, particularly in the first half, and her mother, and sort of her her grandparents and various people in her family and her um, the town that she was born in, and then those are sort of interspersed with contemporary accounts of her living as a essentially an exile from Yugoslavia as it was going through its various sorts of wars and and you know the independent struggles that were going on for the various countries that came out of that uh, part of the world at the time um, in Berlin mainly where she lives although there's a few fragments of her in other places um, I thought I thought the chapter when uh, uh, when she's in Lisbon is like one of the best like short short yeah. short short stories really it's basically a short story but we can talk about that later but again it's these sort of fragmentary bits of her her past as a child her parents her mother um and her sort of contemporary life in and the realities of of the wars happening in Yugoslavia at the time yes and just sort of you know the the umbrella i guess i would put over all that stuff is is the qualities of being in exile in general and just like what that yeah feels like to the best of her abilities through her own biographical as she I think like literally says like kind of like magpie sort of nest like scrap collection that she like gathers around herself yeah and well it's it's like being in it's uh yeah it's it's the description of of people and characters that have been sort of consumed by the stomach of post-soviet union countries i would say and the, the the idea of the stomach runs throughout the whole book and it, it's kind of a i think it's a quite an impressive metaphor um yeah and and there's a lot of metaphors that she uses for that like that kind of um the the one that that she opens it's there's sort of like an author's note at the beginning of the book yes. that that um kind of sets the tone and it's about this you know picture at the berlin zoo of a walrus who who died because he had eaten too many like random like just literally random shit like and she just lists out all the stuff that this uh, uh, walrus had eaten you know cigarette lighters like pencils water pistols like plastic water guns uh, sunglasses box of matches like baby's shoes compasses and and he has a name what's I'm sorry Roland right it's Roland the walrus, the walrus. The walrus. <laughs> say his name please say his it's a perfect name for a walrus. Oh, shit. And I think also importantly, like he doesn't Maybe die Wally. from from consuming a bunch of random shit. He right. just dies normally, and then this is this is what they have to sift through. Yes, that remains. And I, I think you're right. That's really significant. Can I read the last? Because yeah, I mean immediately. Again, this is already. It, I, I love this approach to biography because once again, with this kind of stuff. Uh, it jumps around in time. It's very impressionistic. It feels a lot of the times more like a short story collection. Uh, and by doing that is, to me, it, it, to me it makes it approach a, a more accurate description of the feelings of, of memory and, and all that kind of shit, you know. Um, and so, but uh, she, she kind of lays her cards on the table with the thesis, yeah, in the first page. And uh, this last little the last paragraph of the first sort of introduction is just, uh, it goes like this. 
the chapters and fragments which follow should be read in a similar way. This is her describing just recently the contents of the walrus's stomach. Uh, if the reader feels that there are no meaningful or firm connections between them, let him be patient. The connections will establish themselves of their own accord. And one more thing, the question as to whether this novel is autobiographical might be might at some hypothetical moment be of concern to the police, but not to the reader. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. Because uh, Dubrovka, like, went... Uh, she she left... You're on a first-name basis, man. I love that. Dubravka. Yeah. Ugrasic. I, I think Sitch is generally the way that that's with the... I also looked at the Wikipedia, but it was, like, Cyrillic still. Uh, oh, yeah. She she left... Oh, that's the language, her, right? She left of her own accord, um, but after being pretty hounded, apparently... This is not something that really comes through, I don't think, in the book so much, but, like, uh, she was she was a noted sort of intellectual figure all at that point in what I believe became Croatia um, or not became, but just like in Croatia, but like whatever. I don't, I don't really, this is where, again, that's, the, that's part of it. Like, right. Uh, it was Yugoslavia, but um, when she was born, she was a, she was a Yugoslavian, right? Yeah. Um, and she, she was, you know, just sort of blanket against, violence or I I don't know if she was against succession necessarily but she was sort of just against conflict and and war and and acts of aggression and the things that were happening with increasing frequency so she 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 got hounded for that and for kind of being I don't know what uh, and and threats and stuff so she's like basically I think just fled eventually yeah, that that's my understanding of it too. And again, yeah, that like again, this is why this is sort of semi autobiographical because that there's no exact analog to anybody doing that specifically in the text. Um, but of course, there's like various there are various characters with various reasons for both leaving and staying um, in in Yugoslavia during the war. Um, and again, <laughs> if you listen to uh, last week's episode. This is the we've uh, this month in, on Spinecrackers <laughs> podcast is officially complicated texts about complicated periods of history and parts of the world we don't understand. <laughs> yes, <laughs> month, yes. month, and I, a good I, learning I, experience. I I, I I felt a little bad about the Ah Chang episode just because like I think I said this on the show too, but I was just a, a, a t- I was lit a little bit too hey. much. Oh, me too. It had was, was like. Uh, I didn't. I don't feel like a little bit like I didn't give it a fair shake. I was kind of rambly for that one, which is going to be the same here. But uh, you, you, they can't all be bangers, boys. No, I mean in a way <laughs> that was a banger. It was just a different take. <laughs> yeah, define banger. Well, yeah. true. Fair enough. Um, we, it so was, you, we were partying <laughs> like it was 1999 on that episode. <laughs> That's right. Which is when this book was published. Here. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but published by New Directions Press. Dear God, sponsor us. We're better than. Cliff. I mean, for the love of fucking Christ, yeah. We're better than Cliff. <laughs> that should be that should be the name of our channel. Better than Cliff. Be- <laughs> better than Cliff book reviews. Holy shit. Get that better coffee. Get the- <laughs> <laughs> Dumb Starbucks. Dumb Starbucks, dude. <laughs> we just Cliff bars and shit. Yeah, let's oh just eat Cliff God, bars. Drink so Folgers. Good. <laughs> that's so fucking good um so i i picked this book to kind of because i know we've talked about it a little bit already but you know 
maybe the episode will be fragmented in the same way that the text is. But I picked it because I have a general, a general like very strong interest in Eastern European literature, like broadly speaking, um, you know, literature of the sort of yeah, like Paul said, kind of like the Soviet bloc. Although Yugoslavia was technically not, it was not an SSR. It wasn't like part of the Soviet Union. Right. Technically, it you know um, Tito, who was the you know kind of dictator sort of figure at the head of Yugoslavia for most of the time, had a falling out with Stalin, and um, Yugoslavia kind of took tried to tried to sort of be a, a, a Switzerland type style figure <laughs> uh, uh, in 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 that those wars, the wars of the Soviet Union. So it was never formally an, an SSR, but like that part of the world, I love literature from those sorts of countries and, and just Eastern European in general. Um, and, and I found this book and the title was fucking sick. And I was like, let's, let's that. do it. Yeah. Great. Let's title. Go. Great title. 10 out of 10. Has anyone made title. a joke? Uh, USSRIs. USSRIs. No, but when I was, <laughs> that is a good I, joke though. That is a good joke. And when I was double checking the, the list of SSRs, the the obvious first Google suggestion was SSRIs. <laughs> of course. Do you mean you're depressed and yeah. you need to change chemically? Actually, uh, both. <laughs> My favorite that whole like you know that that Tito and the falling out with Stalin. I, I love. Uh, it led to my one of my favorite things right at the very end. Just a little mm-hmm. phrase that stuck, and I know you know what I'm gonna say, right? Yeah, I think so. Let's say the, it. The guy selling little little busts of Stalin on the street and he yep. just says come on buy a daddy buy a daddy <laughs> <laughs> and he winks at her yep or was <laughs> it lenin was... i thought it was was it lenin or, or stalin lenin 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah yeah buy a daddy it's like come on buy a daddy <laughs> buy a daddy <laughs> oh gosh and i i, I think there's so, like so i don't know how we want to proceed the the book is divided into seven seven parts roughly right um, they're not, they're all of different length. They're all of sort of, of different writing style. Although through some of them, there are these numbered paragraphs that are, uh, in order throughout those sections. So every, it's every other section is a German title, um, because she's alternating sort of between her life as in exile in Berlin and these various sorts of considerations from her own past and people that she used to know and things like that. Um, and so there's this kind of like interweaving of the present and the past in the way that the sections proceed as well. It's so hard. I, I've, I'm having a lot of trouble figuring out, yeah, an angle because, right, each section takes such a radically different approach to yeah. tackling memory and her, or her, uh, reckoning with herself and stuff like so I, I i maybe section by section is the only way to really do it yeah i think i i yeah i mean not to jump in, uh, too far ahead but i even though it was so disjointed for me i did come walk away with like what i thought an author the author's maybe point or question she was trying to ask was uh i wrote it i wrote it down mid read you want to you want to hear it yeah baby lay it on us it. Okay. Um, so this is what I thought. If you lose your societal or nat- nationalistic identity, are you destined to lose your self-identity? 
And does this translate across culturally with each individual who shares your exiled experience? And if you are conscious of that happening, is it still unavoidable? That's that's like kind of the... What Those I, are good questions. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of, like, that's what she's, you know, reckoning with. Like, it's a, it's a unique situation, right? Being born in a country that over the course of your life ceases to exist. You know, yeah. that's not something that's, like, super common these days, you know? Um, I You know, I'm sure that, like, I, I think there are... It was probably true of some countries in Africa in our, our lifetimes, well, you know, like the Sudans and things like that have shifted around. But um, it's it's not super common. And I think it's really interesting to, to, to think about, like you said, Paul, like what are the implications of that for your identity as a person? If, you know, you're from a part of the country that dissolves and splits into two countries and then someone is from another, a diff, like a different part of the country that split into a different country. How do you relate to that person? Um, which is a big part of the book, how she relates to other people that she meets in Berlin who are sort of fleeing the war. Um, and, you know, even some of the discussion of her, her friends, there's a long section at the end, um, towards the end about some of her college friends. So, yeah, I think these questions of, of identity and memory is like, that's, yeah, it's like, is it is it possible to walk away from this experience whatever generation you're in because it, it goes through basically like three generations like she talks about in one section about her grandmother which i love that section um Oof, then there's yeah. one section that's written from the point of view of her mother in italicies which is all like basically a a fake i assume it's a fake journal entry which i also loved but then it goes to you know her own experience dealing with people that are her own are her own age or younger you know around her age so and it it just basically shows this like overall defeatist a- attitude that is i think her claim is that it's hard to avoid or unavoidable after your country kind of splits up into sorry for the metaphor but into horcruxes people like i actually i, I kind of <laughs> i was actually the people what they want <laughs> i was kind of picturing like each individual person being a horcrux of their their lost country and i also does that make about, yugoslavia voldemort because that's problematic yeah wow. no i don't know what, what voldemort is but i also thought about the objects in the stomach the walrus's stomach well, Voldemort uses objects in, uh, for his own yeah, That's right. That's <laughs> yeah, true, dude. A great metaphor. But it is. But 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 it actually <laughs> is a good metaphor because like it's so much about the way that objects carry identity, right? And that uh, the way that objects carry specifically memories, but the way that memories are kind of like, you know, in many ways the building blocks of our identities, right? Right. Yeah. There's someone um, sort of brutally is just like if. If you don't have memories, then are you a person, right? Like, yeah. is it worth being alive without them? Are you human? Yeah. Which is a which is a real actual to put on my uh, douchebag like academic philosopher hat. Oh, come like, on that's now. a genuine question in yeah. academic philosophy of philosophy of mind and philosophy of personal identity. Like, you know, are our our identities, you know is the thing that makes me the same person that I was 10 years ago, the fact that I have memories of being that person, right? Is that the, is that like the determining factor? And, um, you know, I think the book does a really subtle job and there's a lot in here that I think is 
like prescient in terms of what we now understand about memory uh in terms of like it's almost all of our memories are false in some way right they're agglomerations of things that happened around the same time um things that sort of happened in the same era of our lives with lives with the same people and we kind of mash them together and like there's a very good chance that any memory that you have of any sort of discrete moment in your life is false in some in some way that you've added something that you've subtracted something that you put someone there who wasn't there it was in a different month a different year even so we that's how we form memory and there's a lot of that in this in this book as well well i underlined this one also, this thing that I think is really relevant, it just, uh, it goes, uh, it suddenly seemed that forgetting was just another form of remembering, just as remembering was, or, uh, uh, yeah, just as remembering was just another form of forgetting. Which, again, you know, there's, I, I, I liked the form of this book because, uh, you know, Ugresich goes through these, these more elaborate, ways of proving these points or, or not proving them but just sort of demonstrating what she feels is is the point she's making and then we'll just sum it up like that at some other point you know i f- i feel that way right. too like she would <clears throat> she had a beautiful writing style i thought and i thought that she would you know go on somewhat of a tangent about something or other and then sum up what she just talked about with a line like that that just kind of hits nail on the head and uh, it was just rather beautiful. I, I actually underlined that that too. I remember it was, oh, nice. it was just it was a good one. Yeah, and it, and it come it, it gets to the point Gay was just making, like right, <laughs> the, the honesty of 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 not besmirching something by remembering it <laughs> or something strange like that. Because when you do, it's it's you know it's remembering. So it's like you know you just yeah. There's always a new fucking layer and the fidelity just slowly dies yes i think um you know thinking about like paul your quote about kind of what is the what is she trying to do here what's the overall kind of goal um i highlighted a passage from a little less than halfway through the book where i feel like she kind of lays out the the challenge for herself that she's trying to work through and which again makes sense that it's kind of coming halfway through because everything in the book is kind of scattered and and thrown Mm -hmm. in in these sort of random areas and it's a uh, it's on 79 and it's in the, in the, the, the section header, which, you know, the, se- the sections in this part of the book are just labeled things like borders or the heavenly tree or mother's treasure. And this, this is, this section is just labeled quotation. <laughs> and it's, this, it's a long, it's this long quote from Joseph Brodsky, who's a Russian poet, essayist guy who was, essentially forced into political exile from Soviet Russia, the same right. way that, that, um, Ugrisich was, you know, f- rough, basically forced into exile from her country for those political reasons. Run anyway, out of town. Run out of town. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there ain't, there ain't room for the both of us here. Nah, that's, that's Yugoslavia in a nutshell. Exactly. <laughs> Somebody poisoned the water hole. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Cause Matt's background is toy story five. Yes, so, that's right. That and was... if you didn't know, check it. Google image search it. Yeah, dude. <laughs> oof, oof. This video can never yeah. go on YouTube. Although apparently it can. Matt says. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna read this whole quote because it's all kind of of a piece. It's a little bit long, but I think it'll ho- hopefully be illustrative because I think the last paragraph is like 
seems to me to be her throwing down the gauntlet for herself. Like what this is what mm. she's sort of generally like trying to engage in. So this is the Joseph Brodsky quote from uh, an essay or a book of his called Less Than One. Memory, I think, is a substitute for the tale that we lost for good in the happy process of evolution. <laughs> it directs our <laughs> movements, including migration. Apart from that, there is something clearly atavistic in the very process of recollection, if only because such a process never is linear. Also, the more one remembers, the closer perhaps one is to dying. If, uh, yeah. if this is so, it is a good thing when your memory stumbles. More often, however, it coils, recoils, digresses to all sides, just as a tale does. So should one's narrative, even at the risk of sounding inconsequential and boring. Boredom, after all, is the most frequent feature of existence, and one wonders why it is why it is uh, why it fared so poorly in the nineteenth-century prose that strived so much for realism. <laughs> um, but even if a writer is fully equipped to imitate on paper the subtlest fluctuations of the mind, the effort to reproduce the tale in all its spiral splendor is still doomed. For evolution wasn't for nothing. The perspective of years straighten things to the point of complete obliteration. Nothing brings them back, not even handwritten words with their coiled letters. And I kind of think that's like what what she's trying to do is like answer that challenge from Brodsky there. Yeah, I, I that's a great point. I didn't even pick up really on on the self imposed challenge. Well, yeah, I I, re- I underlined that too. I thought that was really good, but I think like she definitely has this question about memory, about objects. About photo albums, those are some of the most prominent os- ob- objects he talks about. But I, um, like her, fi- her fixation on, you know, these objects and these photo albums and memory. I, I think she like, actually disagrees with the no- like. I think her stance is that she doesn't think people should focus on these things. I think that it's like been a an issue for all these people that she's known in her life, and it's only brought people misery like a longing for a a past that is now broken that they can't even like clearly remember anymore but it's it's only caused destruction for people that she knows and for and for her country but mm. that's kind of what i walked away from but i i, I think it's open-ended i'm not sure if i'm correct but yeah i think i would say she's a slightly more agnostic about it um but i do find it interesting i did find it interesting she has her little blurb from on photography by Susan Sontag and yes. uh, who shouts out the book in her own actual blurb for the book. But um, you, I, I do find it interesting. Like there, there is that whole uh, notion of how, how the, the role that photographs play. And like, there's, you know, the cover of the book, the edition I have has a photograph that's referenced and also reproduced in the book. And yes, there you go. Uh, bathers and the whatever. Yeah. Uh, and it, it it I was curious because like that's something that's certainly dated. I feel now, mm. like we have f- photographs or whatever, but it's just like you know they don't fade; they're all digital. The engagement with the memory and the idea of like f- faded little framed kind of slices of time and like the fading of them and blah blah blah, and like we even have now just filters to kind of recreate this 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 stuff. Um, yeah, there, th- I, it made the book more enjoyable, honestly. But the 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 like a little bit of the quaint anachronism of 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 how she regards photos and photography and albums, but the same stuff of like 
it's still a su super selective by the people who gather the photos, especially with the description of her mom, like never keeping a photograph of her uh, her first love. Yes, because because she just wants to like remember that he was like just a six two god beautiful boy and Chad like, man. not just yeah not just some the like little you know boy that he actually was and all his imperfections and like the mom is like also ripping up photographs of herself any older than i don't know 40 right right that kind of stuff like funny little things like that well and matt i wasn't sure if you or, or paul i wasn't sure if you guys got this impression but like because you're right, the cover that's on the front of the book and then on the first, you know, inside of the page is this sort of photo of these three, you know, um, Eastern European women just bathing in a river, essentially, with their tops on and their, like, you know, whatever, you know, head, head wraps. Pacro River. Yeah. And it is it is not only reproduced visually in the book on the front and on this first page in the edition that we have again, but it's described, I think, like two or three times. Mm -hmm. uh, and I feel like the descriptions change, right, a little bit each time yes, to the point yes. to the point that one time in, in, in one of the descriptions, I was like, is this the same picture that she was talking about before? And like there are details that I think are that morph and are not like not necessarily um, representative of like what the picture on the front of the book is. Like I think it changes in, in subtle ways, too, throughout the book. Yeah, well, I think that relates to your point earlier, Gabe, about <clears throat> how. Like, are you the same person you were 10 years ago? Are your memory, do your memories and your recollections of those memories change? And can that affect the way you even view or talk about a photograph that, you know, maybe you looked at the photograph 25 years ago and it made you feel a certain way. And then 10 years go by and your, your view is completely changed. And I think that is a direct representation of how she feels about memory and what you were talking about before too, is that like, you can't rely on memory even with a photograph, your views on it will change because you change. Yes. I, not only, and, and she demonstrates that, I think, like Gabe was saying, in the descriptions of the photo itself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and also I think I, I was going to ask because I didn't really like double check this. I just, I, I noticed that there were other repetitions. There were just entire blocks of text that were just yes. repeated throughout the book. Yes. And I actually mm -hmm. didn't, I fucking didn't double check to see, but my suspicion is this is true, that there were minor alterations to every single instance of that. Yep. I, I, I didn't check every single instance, but I checked a couple of them. And there are, like, there are, there are parts that are word for word the same, but mm -hmm. then, but then it'll be a word for word the same part, like, like, that that fades into a similar part that's different in subtle ways. Like I got you. So there are chunks that where it'll be the same exact text repeated for, you know, two lines, but then the third line will start out the same and then shift halfway through and then go back to being the same a line later. Right. Um, so it's those sorts of like subtle little performative things that she's doing in the text as well. Yeah. Damn. Let I me I'm going to read <laughs> <clears throat> I want to read something early on on page 25 mm -hmm. which i think it does point to to her view being that um these obsessions with photo photographs isn't actually healthy for her or her mother it's right in the middle of the page um sometimes i would come across her leafing through albums her as her mother then she would close the one she was holding, take off her glasses and put them down and say, sometimes I feel as though I have never lived, dot, dot, dot. 
Life is nothing other than a, than a photographed album. Only only when it is the album, only what is in it, the album. Oh, I can't fucking read. Only what is in the album exists. What is not in the album never happened, says a friend of mine. And I I just read mm-hmm. these two passages back to back, as her uh, you know, seeing her mother kind of. Just the dangers of nostalgia through her mother are just coming into play. And I, I think she wrote this, you know, quote from a friend down, basically disagreeing with that notion, though. I mean, she's displaying it, but as a way to just to uh, argue against it. Um, what the that nostalgia is corrosive or that it uh... or that if it didn't, if it's not documented or if there's no memory, it didn't happen. Yeah, I think oh, that okay. she disagrees with that. I, I don't know. I think I, I I I tend to side on more of the like, maybe what Matt said that she's sort of agnostic because like certainly like one of the one of the like anxieties that she expresses in the book beautifully is like this this country that she was born in basically just being pulled out from underneath her feet and feeling like a huge part of her identity is like thrown into chaos and 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 that of course like bleeds into other sorts of anxieties about you know, death because there's war going on and like friends that she speaks to and then kind of who fade out of her life. And she's, you know, I mean, we all know, have friends like this, right? Where people, you're just kind of like every, every six months, you're kind of like, wonder what they're doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, but it's this sort of question of if something disappears in that fashion or fades away in that fashion, like, is it effectively the same as it never having been in the first place? Especially if you don't really remember it, or if it doesn't sort of change you in any powerful way. Yeah, and and the que- these questions are accelerated by her displacement. You know, uh, the, I, I don't know what she thinks overall, like you know, concretely again about this, but like the fact of her not having the geographical continuity of of a nationality, I, it does seem to be fucking with her like heavy (laughs) like like she is now relegated to trying to garner continuity through her memory almost exclusively um and while you know never having a sort of permanent address and uh yeah i don't know i i guess i do think it it, the the overall impression i got was that this has this did this does seem to erode her sense that she will ever be a a, a, uh, what's the word? Like a, just a, like a, 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 a an individual who's not mm. got a certain level of porousness and just the uh, blurred, uh, you know, defining outlines or anything like you know what I mean. Like she feels unpersoned, I think, and I don't think she ever loses it ever. Yeah. Well, and I think most of the the characters she describes too are like that, also like. Um one of my favorite chapters, or I don't know what you would want to call it, is the one where she meets this woman named Lucy. Remember yes, that chapter? Dude. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. one of my. That's one of my favorite characters. Lucy's one of my favorite characters. Yeah, Lucy. Yeah, Owens. that whole chapter was amazing. So, but, what? Uh, so, why? Why was that? Why did you like that part so much? I thought that uh, Lucy just had a great characterization about someone who had just this defeatist attitude and was clearly affected by what the the narrator was affected by too just in her own way she was like kind of destroyed in her own way and segmented into this person who was like overly emotional and ends up 
just kind of alienating everyone she's ever come in contact with. And she keeps describing how, like, every interaction she has with someone, they end up forgetting about her. Like, the the narrator, um, when they first meet, Lucy's like, oh, I know you. Like, uh, do you remember me? And she's like, no, I'm sorry. And then she says, like, well, I'm Lucy, whoever. She's like, yeah, I have no memory of who you are. Um, but they kind of have this, they get coffee, I think, and they have this, like, strange um, meeting in the coffee shop. And at one point, Lucy, like, puts her hands on her in a weird way. And she keeps calling her, like, you're my long-lost sister or something. Um, and it kind of freaks freaks the narrator out. Um, but I don't know. I, ju- I just thought that it was, like, a very personalized depiction of a broken person in this landscape. Um, and it was it was affecting. And I got to try to find it. Because the last line was – I got to find the last line. But mm-hmm. give me a minute. Yeah, Lucy, she's just described as this very, like, thin, nervous, super neurotic person who, uh, I don't know, Ugrasic kind of, like, is disgusted by her in a way. Yes, yes. Her approach is so antithetical to what Ugrasic's preferred self-conception, maybe, you could call it of how she should comport herself is that like, she's just like, like it's this right. She almost says she's an emotional vampire. Like she, like Lucy just sort of goes like, she's too confessional. She's too like, do do you like me? Like, uh, I'm, you know, she gets emotionally invested and instantaneously in this kind of stuff, which I agree with you, Paul, like, her characterization, I, I knew this person so fast, which impressed me when I was reading the right. segment. I was like, oh, fuck yeah, I know I met this type of person. <laughs> like Yeah. Like someone someone who someone who um maybe this is the angle, like someone who because they feel forgettable and uh just sort of like unsure of their real like living reality day to day as an individual. Um, thinks that the angle to take there is to impress upon you way too much confessional material about their personal life and their emotional state at every given second uh, in lieu of intimacy or something. Or like, you know what I mean? To like sp- do a speed run on many years of relationship and friendship and that kind of thing. And it's it, And it never works. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely know people like this, too. I think everyone oh, yeah. does. Uh, but I also think this encapsulates the idea of memory, too. It, it encap- encapsulates a lot of the whole book in, in this story to me. But I want to read. It's on the second to last page, one, 116 of the of the mm-hmm. chapter. This relates to the idea of memory. Um, Lucy lit another cigarette and called the waitress. She gazed into my face and said tenderly in her slight nasal voice, You had your hair cut. It suited you better long. I never had it long. It was longer. Yes, it was longer, I said appeasingly. <laughs> and I, that like kind of sum, sums up their whole relationship, where she just wants to like get Lucy the fuck away from her. But it also, I think, encapsulates the idea that Lucy's memory is not totally right either. Maybe, yes. Lucy, maybe Lucy never even knew this person. She's just insane. Well, and I, and I think specifically in that scene, Lucy was getting drunk, right? Like Lucy was getting... She, they were... Uh, 
drinking, uh, I forget what, but I'm pretty sure Lucy was starting to get, you know, this is no, like she, she has to get him a car, get her a car, doesn't she? No, no, she was seeming to get drunk, but the, the key there is that, that Dubrovich notices that she's not even finished the only glass of wine she's right. been drinking. She's like, she's not actually physiologically drunk. She's getting drunk off of her own, you know, uh, like continual putting herself on more and more limbs that she had already clearly planned to do from the beginning. Like each progressive movement more towards like the confessional mode and right. laying herself yeah. on the line, like d- had some kind of like weird intoxicating effect on her and it wasn't alcohol. I think that that's true. And I also think there might be an element of her just uh, her characterization being someone who actually doesn't like getting drunk and is just pretending to be liked, which I thought <laughs> creepy. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh yeah, we're getting yeah. drunk, so I should act drunk now. And that that was just a the scary. Co- the consensus, I think, right, is L- Lucy would be a lot to deal with, and well, not in a fun way. And to, to me, like the, the 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 part where I was like, oh my god, like this, the, 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 just getting to the <laughs> characterization of like we know this person was at the end of that chapter, like just on the next page, where she says, a few days later, I called an acquaintance, an East European writer in exile who lives in New York. I hear that you met Lucy Skirzel Delco, he said. How do you know? She called me a couple of days ago. And? She told me a lot about you. What did she tell you? She said you were too emotional. Simply too emotional. <laughs> I was actually Ooh. planning to uh, to read that too because... So mad. Like, it just makes it's... me so mad because I know that person. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I love that characterization element. That's the, It's the climax of how crazy this person is. You know, she's... She's calling her friend the emotional one when when she knows that, not her friend, but she knows the narrator thinks that of her, and it's like a it's a weird thing that is true in those types of people. They'll like they'll turn something mm. against the other person, and and everything's a foregone creepy. conclusion, which which is what's so suffocating about those kind of people as well. You know, she's just like, I know you'll I, you're gonna hate me, just like the person that meets you immediately and is like, oh yeah. my god, yes. I'm actually I'm actually a lot. Yeah. And you're going to hate me, and it's like, yeah, yeah I bet I am, um, <laughs> because you've decided. You know, yeah. it's it's just like, ugh. it's bad juju, very bad juju. Yes, sir. I, yeah, I think that like there are so many moments of that subtle but like just so real characterization in this story. Like I, I was thinking about the chapters about her mother, and like specifically the sections where she's like getting these voicemails from her mom and like not calling her back. And like, there's so like, hi mom. Uh, (laughs) Um, First of all, hello. Love you, mom. mm -hmm. Um, But it, it, there was so much truth in those moments and so much like sadness, you know, her mother calling her and her listening to those, her voicemails on the, on the sort of phone smoking like over and over again and like not calling her back. And it was just so real. I I was I was thinking about, you know, yeah, how the load-bearing moments for me were the, like, more, you know, I don't know if this is, like, me being sentimental or something, but it was, like, the more, I don't know, well-rendered personal accounts. But that includes Lucy, even though it's so, such a short moment. Um, but her mom, bro, like, yeah, Bro- broke my heart because she was sat- she was like an actually sounded like an actually like cool woman and like who was truly depressed mm-hmm. and like um <laughs> yeah just those phone calls and just her being like the the whole Paul you were saying the um 
that I kind of like entire italicized, maybe made up, maybe actual real verbatim um, journal entries. Yes. Mm-hmm. Those were those were sad. They were very sad. That was sad. Well, and then I, she ends up um, she ends up dying. She like it, they describe like these instances where she's slowly getting sick, right? And then she ends up dying of some disease. Isn't that what happens? I can't totally remember. Well, she gets sick and then she gets better, right? Yeah. She's in the hospital and then she gets better and comes back out, I think, for uh, for a while. Um, Just like just like Dubrovich, like looking at her and like just being like, I hope my face doesn't ever get that. You Gresich doesn't get that slack and vulnerable looking just like her like shitty personal like being like, I know I'm starting to look like my mom. I hope I never get that this face or like i look this helpless like really dark good stuff well i think that yeah that translates for me to um my question about the overall not my question but it's an example of how you know her mom's environment and her life this might be a generalization or an obvious statement but how it is it was unavoidable for her to not be affected by what was happening in her country and the surrounding states and it translates to almost everything about her life, her relationships, and even the way that she physically looks. I think that her mother, wasn't she described as being like a pretty good-looking younger woman? And I think that she just, you know, slowly degrades and looks worse and older than she actually was. And, I mean, maybe that happens to everybody, but it was still... It does. It it does. But, I mean... Forever young. (laughs) It's like she... (laughs) Forever, yeah. <laughs> Didn't happen to David Bowie. Maybe not till the very end. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. Well, Whoa. you know he was actually killed by he, he 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 definitely got a little assisted suicide action going so he could get his record out in an artistically good moment, which is honestly awesome. Chad. Yeah. yeah that album's really good. Yeah. I think another uh chapter that Really affected me too. Well, was the one about can her I, can grandmother? I just, yeah. Oh, go can, ahead. Sorry. I just wanted to read a, a bit about about the mother. That that it, it's long, but like this is some of the the best writing that I feel like I've read, maybe since we started doing this podcast. Um, so I feel like it's worth reading. Uh, this is again her sort of listening to her mother's voicemail, not calling her, and kind of thinking about. So anyone who's n- fucking failed to call their mom back, I think should. <laughs> Buckle in to relate to this. Buckle in for some feels. I definitely teared up when I read this the first time. Instead of her number, I dial the speaking clock. 11.55 and three seconds, says the voice. I sit silently holding the receiver against my face, caressing it, rubbing my cheek against the cold plastic. 11.55 and five seconds, says the monotonous voice. I open my mouth as though I'm going to say something. I form it into a little circle for some little round words. 11.55 and seven seconds, says the voice. Soundlessly, I pronounce, hello, here I am. It's Bubby, which is what her mother calls her. The little balloon words rise into the air. 11.55 and 10 seconds, says the voice. The little balloons hover, swarm around me like moths. Time pours indifferently out of the receiver, cooling my weary temples. I imagine her in bed. She's reading something. Her eyes sting. She slowly takes off her glasses, shuts the book, and places her glasses on it. She sits up, sits for a moment on the edge of the bed, swinging her legs, crumbling the darkness with her toes. Then she looks at her swollen hand, puts it under the bedside lamp, and examines it carefully. 
She picks up the remote control, turns on the television, changes channels. There's an empty screen on all of them. The emptiness hums monotonously. Snow seeps from the screen into the room. She turns off the television, goes lazily to the bathroom. There, she sits on the toilet for a long time, crumbling the air with her toes, urinating. In the half-darkness, she listens to her own sound. From the bathroom, she goes to the kitchen. She doesn't turn on the light. She opens the fridge, stares at the illuminated display, looking for something. On the white wire shelves are a yogurt, a carton of milk, a little piece of cheese, a mouse's supper. She closes the fridge without taking anything. She goes over to the window, touches the velvety leaves of the African violets in the dark. She leans against the windowsill, smoking, gazing into the darkness. Beneath her, large green leaves rustle and glint. Illuminated by the moonlight, they look like silver trays. In a year or two, the green trays with a metallic sheen will reach right up to her window. Large-leaved trees grow so quickly. She hears her heart beating in the darkness. Pit-pat, pit-pat, pit-pat. She feels touched, as though there were a lost mouse inside it, beating in fright against the walls. She strokes the velvety leaves of the violets, soothing her heart. Here and there, a pale light glows in the windows of neighboring buildings. In one, she sees a dark, motionless figure of someone smoking. In another, a motionless woman is leaning on the sill, smoking. She watches the woman, uh, the woman like her reflection in a mirror. Three pins of light, three sparks, glimmering in the darkness. The luxuriant leaves absorb the thin mist of smoke. She feels a sudden desire to wave to them. She rejects the idea with smiles, concealed in the darkness, and she imagines her hand moving, her little, discreet signal with her finger, and she imagines the two smokers in the dark sending her the same signal. And I was just like, fuck, I gotta call my mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really good writing. I mean, I, I was having some some uh, flashbacks to Gene Stafford a little bit, and a, a mm. little bit of Simonon, too. I, I would put her writing up there with either of those, which is high praise. I just thought she nailed those kind of terrible characterizations of old age and sadness. This is also something that like, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sold on this notion even myself, but just like biography at its best kind of allows for this really like ripping intimacy. If, yeah. if done, if done correctly, uh, that makes it still, you know, I don't know. It, it's it's such a lampooned genre that lends itself a lot to like the worst habits of people. But like, if you can, if you can be honest with yourself, I suppose, uh, and shine a really ga- glaring light, garish light on parts of your life, you can get at things that that touch a lot more than just the people in your own, you know, than you in your own circumstances. Like, cause normally I just think of like fucking like one man shows where it's just like, Hey Johnny, come in. You know, it's just like one of these like stage performances where it's just like a guy's like, Hey, and there's uncle Tony on the porch smoking sausages again. Like that's classic, you know, fucking, uh, bed, <laughs> bed street, street life. And there's my uncle John. He always loved the, the pack, and you're just like, boo. Well, uh, yeah, and then the 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 you know my like w- what you're saying, Matt. My first reaction is that fucking book that was I don't even remember when this was in the mid 2000s. I want to say maybe early 2010s. That guy who published that like 
it was it was marketed originally as a memoir, and it's like a drug addict, and it was like so hard. A hitting. million little pieces. Million little pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it turned out it was all fucking made up. It was fake. And, and like, so I think that that like is a perfect kind of example of what you're saying. Like biography being this like, you know, again, it's kind of a maligned genre in a way, and it's sort of like either it's either that kind of one man show type thing, or it's this like overly dramatic. Like here's all the here's just a list of horrible shit that's happened to me, and like how bad is that? Right, yeah. yeah. It's just like high drama, or it's incredible, but not, you know, I, I think it's the preferred mode now because there's a lot of, I feel like there's a little bit of an overemphasis mm. on like write what you know and therefore write, write um, autobiographical or auto ethnographical stuff um, in a certain mode. Um, but I, and this, I like... this is both to me anyway as an American, and it's just. This is one of, I, honestly, this is one of the best books I've read in a long time. Yeah, me too. Spoilers. Me too. I love this one. Yeah, spoilers. Same. Yeah, there's a lot of just like direct um, autobiographical stuff for sure, but I, there, there's enough fictionalized elements in there that, you know, I think she uses it to twist what she's trying to say to her own way. There, I mean, I would even say there's a little bit of magical realism, right? Oh, yeah. Um, in the, in mm-hmm. the, in the chapter about when she meets um, that that lover on the streets of Berlin, the uh, oh yeah, name in Lisbon, Lisbon. Um, oh, and yeah, in Lisbon. Yeah, uh, what is his name? Antonio. Antonio. Yeah. yeah. Antonio. God, that was such a sad. Oh man, that was like so. One of the saddest and most beautiful parts of the book. I'm saying that about everything we're talking about. I know. <laughs> I know. But man. I I really love this one too. I mean, it was sad and beautiful. But I, one of the my favorite parts about it is that like. She, she knew everything that was happening while it was happening. Like she knew she was falling for this guy, this younger guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but she like was just going along with the affair, the romance, and knew when he was lying. He was kind of like a scumbag and kind of lying about. He was basically money and, he was basically like a long form prostitute. Like he was playing like the long game. Yeah, yeah, con man. Yeah, you know, and and Paul, this kind of folds back on a point you made way back. At the beginning of the sh- of the podcast, which is like, um, does your consciousness of something occurring in any way, yes, <laughs> stop it from occurring? And I, yes. I, I think this is, I, I don't know. I, I think it's not a resounding no, but it's basically <laughs> no. It's yeah. basically a no. It's like, yeah, it's a resounding ninety nine percent no. What you say. can do is be uh, more verbal about it and have more kind of baroque memories to then endlessly reflect on afterwards but yeah, basically right. it's a no yeah i i think you're so i i, I kind of want to talk more about the the night in lisbon specifically but like the section sure. the section in which that that story is situated is basically a collection of like very short kind of stories it's 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 part 4 it's on page 109 is where it starts and the title of the section is archive Six stories with the discreet motif of a departing angel. Right. And that also comes back in the next section, the the idea of an angel as this sort of like magical realist element. But like there's so much, there's so many, This so this is where the story of Lucy um, uh, first uh, happens. But there's so many weird little um, moments. You know, she talks about her, her uh, uh, Middle Eastern roommates, I think, right? Or are they... No, Indian. Indian, pardon me. Um, 
she she talks about living with like a group of Indian roommates who she's like not really getting along with, and like the end of that story is so strange, where basically uh, uh, I'll just read it. Like she's confronting them about something uh, in, in their kitchen. You know what I'm? You know this? You remember well, this? Ma- I know they're making way too much noise in the bathroom. Yes, and she's just brought to tears almost by the like repeated offense of them being loud which and by the way i have been brought to tears by roommates making too much noise in the back 100 percent, 100 percent. but but there's this bizarre um moment at the at the end of that story which paul i just wanted to highlight because you brought up this like this vein of magical realism that kind of runs through this these this text so this is her going to confront them about the noise i think that they're making in the kitchen or something uh, with a sudden movement, I open the door of my room and find them um, at the kitchen table, motionless in a shaft of light. They exchange frightened glances. I stand like that, holding my breath. The kitchen is filled with a silence as sharp as a knife. And then, as though in a slowed-down film, Uma gets up, lift, lifts her nightdress of floral flannel, reveals thin, almost boyish thighs and genitals covered in thick, black feathers with an oily sheen exactly like a bird's. With her fingers bent into pincers, Uma slowly plucks a feather and hands it to me with a conciliatory gesture. Thanks, I mutter stupidly. I'm blushing. I take the feather and don't know what to do with it. She looks at me with the expression of a beaten animal, lowers her eyes, bends her head a little as though expecting a blow, and drops her nightdress. And the feather is a sort of symbol that is used repeatedly as well. That The sort of gifting of a feather happens a couple times in the story, too. That's why this story is stealing from Forrest Gump. Ooh. <laughs> and it's basically just Forrest Gump 2. <laughs> the, the Museum of, of Bubba Gump Shrimp Co. That's right, Booby Gump Shrimp. Booby Gump. God, dude, that's me. Actually, I, that's me. I was thinking more of the factory, honestly. But yes, well, I was yeah, of Black Swan. <laughs> yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because I don't know. right, you, you oh, were sorry. saying. Sorry, let me just one thing. Uh, she gets like this black feather, um, and then later on, uh, when she's describing a visitation by an angel again. Uh, everyone gets a white feather of oblivion. So I, I just feel like this is like she gets these grimy, fucked up memories that don't get to leave her. While, whereas mm. I don't know if she rightly should say this, but like her friends get to um, exist sans these uh, highly specific memories. Yes. Uh, with the white feather that they're bequeathed. Yeah, we should we should probably talk about that section because that's it seems seems to me to be a pretty important chunk of the book. Um, the, the the last thing I want to say about this section, this archive sort of with the motif of the angels and stuff, um, and I we can maybe come back to the Lisbon story. But this book was published originally the same year, and I think this is just kind of an interesting synchronicity as a work of philosophy by um, Jacques Derrida called Archive Fever, and Derrida was interested in in that text in questions of digital memory. He was specifically kind of worried about email, and he's mobilizing Freud, and, the, you know, he's Derrida was always very interested in things like writing letters and friendship and sort of like, you know, what the implications of digital 
um, digital culture and digital interaction um, meant for 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 you know human interaction and memory and so he wrote in again the same year this book was published 1996 this book archive fever um sort of working through some of the psychoanalytic freudian implications of his understanding of digital culture specifically email right this is the late 90s derrida was not on facebook but um I, I, I just think it's interesting that this book was published in the same year as that book. And she's so, so explicitly and in such a detailed way engaging with the archive and the idea of archivization and like, you know, the way our identities are shaped by the sort of memories and items and in some cases physical objects that we collect. Um, I, I, I just thought that was worth mentioning as something that stuck out to me as, as interesting. I don't have a, I don't have a unified theory of, reading Ugrasich through Derrida, but the fact that those two books were published in the same year, I think is interesting. Well, our, I mean, yeah, there's again, a little, oh, no, just that archiving is now just even more an important thing. That's all. It's just, it's become an even more, I think, vital topic now, but that's it. I was going to say, maybe it just is some sort of synchronicity or maybe it relates to like the phenomenon of cultural collectivism or, or cultural consciousness. That could, you know, also relate to it. I'm not 100% sure, but it definitely is interesting to think that they came out in the same year. Well, and ultimately, right, like the title of the book refers to an actual museum that, that, that exists. And, it, and in, in real life, it does exist. I looked it up. It has a different name now, at least. Um, but it's this, it's this kind of out of the way, like sleepy museum in Berlin that details like the Russian occupation from a Russian perspective. Um, and I, the way she describes it is so like weird and sad. And like, again, like links up with this idea of the personal archive with the way that we socially archive these things, the way we socially archive these memories and culturally archive these memories for, you know, who knows what use in the future. And imagine, imagine though her finding this museum and just being like, "Yes, fuck yeah, dude! My book has a goddamn th- controlling idea <laughs> <laughs> and like symbol in a physical location in the city I'm exiled in. I'm so pumped." So I, I like to imagine her being pleased about that discovery. You think so? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if she's pleased. I mean, I mean, pleased to her I'm degree. Not, I don't know. Of capability, yeah. that uh, being pleased while being totally agnostic, as you've been saying, I, I think that would probably be a good react. Her reaction. Well, I don't actually know. I, I I didn't really look up like how long she sat with this book or like how long it took her to write. I mean, we got the like publication dates, and uh, I would imagine since it's about exile, and I think she was she left. Uh, you, then Yugoslavia uh, in like 93 and if this came out in 96 so I guess like about three years mm-hmm. but I don't know like yeah she's been sitting with, with these notions of how to ex- describe the, the texture and feeling of being in exile which is definitely yeah. something I have not you know certainly none of us most people would not have come close to understanding no, I think it's something that 
you know, we can't di- directly relate to in any form. We, we don't, we haven't lived that experience, so we can't totally empathize with it. But that's why it's good to read fiction and learn about someone else's perspective. A hundred percent. And that's why you should I, listen to us then. Yes. But then read the book, obviously. I mean, w- honestly, we're assuming you have whenever you listen to something like this, but. You don't have to. I did want to read one little thing and go back to the angels a little bit in this section. Yeah. Um, it's the, uh, it's in the, the Lisbon chapter at the second to last page. Um, so this is when like Antonio, are, they're kind of like parting ways. And it's like the right. last time she sees him. He got him. the money already. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't, yeah. It's not going to pay her back. Uh, images mingled in my head and suddenly Antonio's naked back flashed across my mind, stopping for an instant as though expecting something. I saw myself approaching him from behind, passing my tongue over the edges of his shoulder blades, following the path of two small mother-of-pearl scars. One on each shoulder shoulder blade, I saw myself moistening with my compassionate saliva the places where, until recently, there had been wings. So it's like it basically saying that he was like an angel and that his wings were cut off. It just relates to this like angel feather type motif that um Yeah. I have an idea about, but I think it's a little too simple. Um I mean I have you guys a, can you go ahead. Just a, I my like rough guess of just that whole sequence was more just about um the de I I don't know. Like uh the not the demystification, but uh your um, your conception of somebody initially just being way higher, and then the particulars and things happening over time, just turning them from this almost otherworldly being into yeah, you know that you kind of like met through providence, and it's like it's just all of it's so charged with meaning, and then uh, eventually like it's just like you know yeah, a de-winged angel, somebody who's just a person. Mm who's now just got the scars of what your previous conceptions of them were. Well, yes. yeah, but when I think about that, I think I agree, but when I think about the the passage that Gabe wrote about the roommate showing her feathers and being kind of ashamed after showing them, I think it my my takeaway from this section was more like maybe just like a simple fall from grace, like all these people have no yeah, um ability to be that angelic person that they were not supposed to be, but could be. Um, there's a, there's too much that have ha- that has happened to each of these characters that is preventing them from having wings or having feathers. And I I did like that the 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 aspect that she was like shameful uh, of her feathers too. Like she just right. kind of like she didn't want them there or something. Like she she didn't even want to face the fact that she could be someone that she wasn't um yeah i i but i do uh, yeah i i'm kind of with you though in the sense that um this was such a controlling idea for the like half of the book that i and that i feel like i've got a little bit of an insufficient take on or um or whatever you know yeah i watched that movie uh wings of desire which is awesome yeah, but uh, it still didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Forrest I mean, Gump would have helped. It was a cool yeah, ass yeah, movie. You, you should watch it. Forrest Gump was more of a thing of right. Forrest Gump. 
I mean, yeah. I think Forrest is... Gump, when he invents shit happens, remember the, oh, the, yeah. the sticker? Oh, That's yeah. what this book is about, and I figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> this book, like, basically in Forrest Gump, when he's, like, running for a long time, that's basically, like, all the exiles, like, running to different places around the world to get away from it. <laughs> he's, like, the universal refugee. Yeah, exactly. Whoa. Whoa. Okay, wait, hold Whoa, on. That bro. might be something there. Bro. 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 bro it's bro, like, bro. I'm, now all I'm thinking of is, uh, do you ever watch that movie Human Traffic? No. No. Where they all take ecstasy, and then the one guy's, like, talking about Star Wars as though it's, like, this, he's, like... <laughs> Darth Vader's out there, and he's looking. F- it's about like the fucking like club culture in the UK, and he's yeah. like, Darth Vader, he's out there in this starship looking for outer space. He's trying to conquer outer space, and Yoda, man, Yoda, he's trying to conquer inner space. And everyone's like, <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's like, oh. <laughs> and then they all come down from drugs, and they're like, that was uh, incredibly stupid. Well, um, as the resident Star Wars expert on the pod, uh, it's not stupid. It's true. Actually, it's not true. It's actually totally false because the Jedi were deeply imperialistic, very problematic, especially at their heyday. And if I learned anything, it's that the, the midichlorians are the powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> there's a school of thought that says that the midichlorians were, are, there's actually no scientific basis. And it's basically just a story that the Jedi made up to keep class distinction. Whoa, wow. Shit, wow. Anyway, anyway, that's for uh, that's Patreon only content. <laughs> <laughs> that's the kind of shit that'll get us in trouble with the government. Yeah, exactly. Um, I wanted to. I, uh, um, oh, yeah, go ahead. I wanted to reel it back to the mom again, just because. Yes. Uh, there was two things. The, the the mom, you know, uh, again because this is still I would regard as a biography, and therefore like this figure i don't really like her dad's just not in the picture eh? like yeah i don't remember anything distinct about her father like she talks about yeah go ahead paul do you remember well, i know yeah i know that he wasn't in the, i know that he was just not in the picture but she describes her mom dying and then her dad dying like years afterwards so they, she mentions they just, his death yeah so yeah they okay. just weren't they together just weren't, but yeah. uh she i don't think she her father was in her picture. Um, so it's, this is like, again, this is, uh, you know, this is Ugaresic talking about a memory of her mother. And then, and then again, I want to pair it like 30 pages later with a memory of like her mother immediately after her death, I believe, or, or after her, uh, receiving of all of these or reading all of these like, uh, journal entries. Um, and I love this. It's uh, So it just goes, uh, the pure silk scarf. Mother always emphasized the word pure. Had been sent by my grandmother in a letter. That little breath of silk smuggled in an ordinary letter opened a crack in the door to the unknown. The words pure silk worked like a magnet to attract other words of obscure meaning. The word emerald among others. I used to enjoy rolling the unusual wor- word emerald around on my tongue as though I were rolling a hard green menthol sweet round in my mouth. Uh, which is just a beautiful description of, like... Yes. These weird... I, I don't know how to describe this myself, but, like, um, these weird fixations to, to words and objects and stuff uh, in a childlike manner when you're very young. Uh, how there's, like, a sort of magnetic or gravitational pull 
that certain like textural objects and words and stuff, uh, especially spoken by adults when you're young, that that just have this weird import to you, bec- just because of the happenstance of who you were born around and then what they choose to say (laughs) and how that's like the first sort of like skewing of memory towards certain directions very specifically that Mm -hmm. that you know are unique and individualistic and then okay i just want to pair it with this other thing so you know that that was uh like that was page 15 and then this is 50 uh i asked myself what is left because here in the palm of my hand are the shells of her language, her identity, touchingly misused accent marks, intonations which only I hear, words whose meaning only I know, her handwriting which changes depending on her mood, self-censorship which only I sense. To start with, I begin fiddling with feeble ideas about genre, hoping in a sly corner of my mind for literary effects, but now I'm just in its painful center, as in quicksand, and I can't get out. Hmm. I just, I, I love... I love that description, you know, like the artistic project endeavored and then still just getting caught up in, in the, in the sheer fact of, of your own accumulated memories around the people you're trying to fictionalize and aestheticize and all this kind of stuff. It's just, I, I love that. And, and, and there's such a, like the other thing that we haven't like necessarily really touched on yet is that there are significant chunks of this book that are basically dedicated to like, short form essays on art criticism. Like there's a lot of, you know, her describing various artists and their installations. And sometimes, sometimes she meets them as actual characters in a story. Sometimes not. And what you could say is Kunst. What is it? Right. Yes. That's the, the, that's the title. (laughs) (laughs) The, The title of the, the second to last section, I think, or no, the third to last. Was is, was is Kunst? Was is Kunst? Was ist Kunst? What is art? Know. What is art? Yeah, and I do want to um, talk about. I, I want to go back and talk what talk about what Matt was talking about in a second because I want to talk about her grandmother a little bit more. Just I want to talk about more characterization in terms of like um, being being able to connect with maybe your younger self. I think she has a huge ability to do that in a beautiful way. But yeah, I did want to read. I, I picked up on the art criticism a lot too. And there's one line on 169 where he's talk. She's talking to Richard, the artist, mm-hmm. who's kind of obsessed yeah. with like gathering little knickknacks, and he like obsesses over the 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 pavement in Berlin, Berlin, and thinks yes. that it's like the most unique pavement, and no pavement is like this anywhere <laughs> yeah. in the whole world. Um, it tells a story, man. It tells a story. But I think this is probably the strangest thing I've ever read about someone's opinion on what art is. It's from this guy, Richard. Um, And it's under that 83 mark. With our feet on the empty seat in front of us, Richard and I sit under the vast copula of the planetarium in Prunzler Alley. (laughs) That was great, wasn't it? A starry rain falls on us from the sky, and while the tiny artificial stars fall over us, I ask quietly, what is art, Richard? I don't know, an act which is certainly connected with mastering gravity, but which is not flying, says Richard. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? Hell yeah. It's the, like the, one of the craziest things I've ever heard. I love it. Yeah. I love it too. Well, and, and, and again, <laughs> right, like that last scene where they're, 
that's a repeated moment in this section where she's looking up at the at the in the like on the hill, right? Like looking up in in the into the sky, like mm-hmm. that. Those few lines are again getting back to Mac, Matt's point earlier about the repetition. And I think yeah, like it's it's interesting because th- that section is repeated. The phrase sort of like was is was ist Kunst like is repeated over and over again to various characters and that's the first time it's said in English written like like written and written in English to Richard um and I, I again I, I just think it's this interesting like little minute variations in the way the repetition is done in the text I like Richard too he's just like he just seems like a cool artist eccentric in Berlin who's like Essentially trying to just, uh, what's the word? He's doing, it seems like he's doing a lot of, uh, the, um, putting objects in strange contexts in order to alienate people from their original use. But also he's obsessed with like the lineage and, or whatever, like the, the, the continuity of, of narrative that is possible within, shitty rusted out coffee cans and yes. broken chairs and stuff uh i kind of like that it, it, i mean it's I, funny I, because uh, like richard along with a number of other characters in the book are real people richard wentworth is a real oh am i muted mute no, yourself. Um, no mute there you go there you go i did the thing where i had the double uh you sounded uh, like yeah. a big man for a second I mean, yeah, I am. I look like a, ro- a robot, big man. Are, are you calling me fat? <laughs> no. no. Whoa, chill. Um, but but a lot of the characters in this book that she references, specifically in the sections about art, are real people, right? I don't know. I, I don't know if she's ever met them or like what their interactions, you know, like how realistic these depictions are. But Richard Wentworth is a real artist, a real British artist. And when she first introduces him in this section, there's a footnote that I think is really funny. And she says, Richard Wentworth, like, so uh, she introduces Richard um, and and the footnote is Richard Wentworth, an English artist. Any similarity between Richard and himself is intended and accidental. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's great. Great sense of humor throughout this book, too. We haven't really talked about that, but yeah. she has a great sense of humor. And well, she, she, is, she's an established intellectual. Yeah, she's so, an academic. Know, she, and she's already, in like, the, in the, that realm, yes. firmly established at that point. So, The the f- telling thing that I took away from this chapter was that I, I found – I liked Richard, too. Um, and I think he had, like, more of a grounding than a lot of the characters, more of, like, a sense of purpose – um, but I also thought it was telling that he wasn't from this area. He he was English. Um, and I think that relates to her, uh, I can't say her freaking name, Urgesic. I think it relates to her view on how maybe people from her country, from this split apart um, horcrux of a, of a world, <laughs> they um, they can't, they're, they're going to have a tough time st- uh, finding a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives. Yeah, I mean Berlin itself, right? She she saves a lot of quotes from maybe her second most referenced, not even in a little epigraph, but in in the text writer Shklovsky. Uh, Shklovsky, Victor Shklovsky. I'm maybe mis. Uh, we're all mispronouncing everything, but I think that's right. Um, you know, describes Berlin as just like 
yeah, this dead museum bifurcated like a brain, you know what I mean, by the wall and just like all this yes. kind of stuff. Like it's not a real place. It's it's an the aspirational museums are run by like like confused archaeologists. I forget the exact term, but I, I like that. <laughs> yeah. It's like an archaeological town that where they're right. just like confused about what they should be. It's just made um, of debris. Collecting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean and the description towards the end of the book of the flea markets, right? In Berlin where there's all mm. these old you know, n- I mean, not even old, really, at the time, but sort of these intermingling, you know, you could buy a, a Nazi officer's uniform alongside, you know, some toy from a, a country the Nazis occupied. And, like, again, it's it's a, just one of these other sort of physical manifestations of, like, her understanding of memory, right? We have these, like, albums, these family albums and photography. We have the walrus. We have these flea markets. We have all of these various ways that she's trying to get at kind of the, you know, the operation of memory, I think. Yeah. And I think it, I forget the exact quote, but someone of you guys read it earlier where I think it was Matt, where you said, um, she said, remembering is self-destruction or something like that. It wasn't self-destruction, but remembering is like, Oh, just forgetting is a form of memory and, and remembering is a form of forgetting. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, these people's fascinations with these objects from this bloody past, is you know it's their form of trying to remember but it's also their form of trying to forget but it's also self-destructive i would say i i mean that's my view i'm not sure if that's I, i'm not sure if that's her view but it, it, it i think it's interesting because it's self-destructive but it's also self-preservative because there's this yeah, other character yeah. right like um zoran uh who keeps making this point that like you know and he's in exile too from from yugoslavia i forget exactly where from but um, he keeps repeating this phrase like we're all museums now like we are all walking walking museums like we are the archives we are the museums of this time and place that is that is no longer that is not that literally doesn't exist anymore and so it's 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 both this process of self-destruction in a way or or it's process of dealing with self with destruction but it is also a sort of pickling right it's like a sort of self-preservation and trying to hold on to those things that were so constitutive of your identity for so long i think that's that's a good i like the word pickling there um one one idea i had or thought i had towards the end of the book too is when it came back to the wall or stomach i think that this idea of the stomach is such a strange one to me and I can't totally wrap my head around it, but I wrote something down towards the end. I wrote the objects like that, you know, in the flea markets and objects in the stomach are, I think what she considers people to be. And, and they're not being digested by the stomach. Um, and I, I thought that, you know, this, this aftermath in this world is kind of this, like, it felt really close and enclosed to me. Like, everywhere she talked about going, this whole, you know, life's journey she went on, it felt like she was in this bubble, and it reminded me of a stomach. But she also, or it just also reminded me that, like, um, but what I couldn't wrap my head around, though, is that, like, does she think that because people and these objects can't be digested, does that mean if you were digested that you would be living a better life? Would you be thriving in this stomach? And 
that's an un, I'm not sure if I'm on the light right line of thinking, but I I think it's it really was kind of a doomy question. view for me. Is that like she, if she if she sees her world as a stomach, <laughs> then would being digested be the right course of action? I mean, I think right is maybe a too strong a word, but certainly appealing and potentially would save a person from... I, I, I think it's just more like integration is the way of like describing digestion there, mm. right? Like, Which I think, again, comes back in, in the story about like all her friends being bequeathed these white feathers of oblivion by an angel. I think it's just the same thing. You because know? because yeah. digestion is also is also ultimately nutritive, right? Like you digest right. in order to, you know, feed or sustain something else. But in the process of doing that, the thing that is digested is transformed or disappeared or, you know it, it, integrated. It, no longer what it is. You're right, yeah, integrated. And turned into shit. And well, that's, ultimately that's turned a good, into shit. That's right. a good point, because yeah. after this I wrote in the in the chapter about the muse, the actual museum, I wrote, "The museum is the colon." Mm. And I, I, <laughs> no, I like I, that a lot. I kind of saw it as that, like, the, you know, if if we're thinking about this in terms of a di- digestive tract, I saw this museum as the uh, the very end of the line and the worst, the worst part of the of the system. Right, waste yeah. material, waste material that you of of an of a no longer existing thing. Right, broken down to its constituent parts that don't matter and are unwanted. Like that—that's the thing. Like I remember, like there's a part where like um, her and her friends are just recollecting random Yugoslavian products. There is an interesting like consumerist kind of note at the very end of the book, I would say, Mm -hmm. and it starts, I believe, with all these friends remembering different brands of, I don't know, like Yugoslavian coffee and the first TV show on Yugoslavian television and this kind of stuff. And, and it, I think it was it important that it, the, all those things were just things that these people consumed that now were very pregnant with meaning because they didn't exist any longer. Yeah, I, I like... Mm. Thinking about the idea of more of uh, from a capitalist consumerist viewpoint, because this this book kind of reminded me a little bit of Dirty Snow in a lot of ways. But I think in one way it it's told in such a personal way that those issues about the world, they come into play in their own way, but they're never direct. And I think the idea of consumerism was for these people was such like a an undriving force in their desire to Mm -hmm. go to these flea markets and buy these objects and look at these photographs that it didn't really even come up for them but towards the end i think it did that finally did for some of some of these characters well and and it's interesting because the very one of the very last scenes i think the very last scene in the book is her on a on the stairmaster at the gym staring out staring out the window at the rotating mercedes-benz star uh (laughs) Right, like the, is the uh, on top of the Ben Mercedes Benz factory, and here, you know, the section I read earlier about her mother, it's repeated but altered a little bit. Right, she's talking about um, being in the gym on this stairmaster, 
uh, and she's talking about this is sort of in the context of her, you know, sort of meditating on Berlin as this kind of city with two faces, like the West and the East, and so on. Like the mayor of uh, Halloween Town. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are, Halloween Did Town. Did anyone or, think uh... to dredge the lake? <laughs> Where's Jack? That's not Halloween Town, man. That's uh. Nightmare Before Christmas. Well, yeah. Well, he's the mayor of Halloween the mayor Town. Of Halloween. Oh, I'm a I'm a freaking millennial, and I thought of my sister's so am I. Halloween Town on the Disney Channel, which is a movie. There's only 365 days till next Halloween. 364. <laughs> <laughs> Halloween Frog's Town is breath. <laughs> worms, worms, worms ward. Where's the worms ward? <laughs> Jack. Dude, me and- me and my brother always do the skipped worms. Worms, worms, worms. I oddly love him, like seeing him drink the soup. It's a very satisfying thing. And when she uses the spoon and it goes through the holes. Oh, mm-hmm. classic, mm, classic trick. So scrumptious. <laughs> one of the best moments. Yeah, in it's one of the best history. movies of all time. Uh, legendary, legend. Where were we? Um, I was just talking about her <laughs> in the gym. <laughs> because right, she's talking right. about Berlin as this kind of two-faced city like the mayor of Halloween Town. That's right. Okay. Um, so she says, Female samurai come here. Strong, slender young women with perfect muscles, smooth, set jaws, and inscrutable expressions. So different from me. One, two, one, two. We march in a row. We, moving dolls, each determines our own rhythm. The three-pronged metal star revolves slowly. Its rotation puts me into an into a hypnotic half-sleep. The metal goddess, like a laser, strokes the rough scars of the city, reconciles times and the different sides of the world, the past and the present, west and east. I hear my heart beating in the darkness. Pit-pat, pit-pat. I feel touched, as though there were a lost mouse inside it, beating in fright against the walls. Somewhere, far behind me, the landscape of my deranged country is ever paler. Here in front of me are steps that lead to nowhere. I'm just like fuck. Mm. <laughs> that's yeah, <nice>. fuck. <laughs> but again, right? Like that's the thing, right? Because that that line about the mouse in your heart as your heartbeat—that's repeated from her imagining her mother staring out a different window at the people smoking, and here she is staring out the window at the sort of smoking factories of Berlin, and having the same sort of sensation. Dog, I literally I killed a mouse yesterday. Did you really? Oh my God. Yeah. How? Well, how? It was Dang eating. It was eating. It, it was eating stuff in the house and shitting in drawers. And I had like to they do. Put a, I had to put a stop to it. I put a trap in one of the drawers that I know it liked, and I got it yesterday. Oh, what little... a big man you are! <laughs> <laughs> no, I was sad, and I oh, and I oh, okay. and I had to go uh, bash it with a hammer because it was. Uh, mm. Was it still alive? Because his back, his little back, was broken oh, by the trap, but it was still God. alive. That's tough. That's and uh, I, I can't. I could barely do it. Yeah. Wow. This podcast me. is definitely anti-suffering, by the way. So I'm basically yeah, we like, We're... <laughs> I'm basically the same as Dubravka Ugresic, Yes. I believe in terms of the hardships I <laughs> also endure. <laughs> oh my god! I see that mouse's fa- little pleading eyes every night when I go well, to sleep. Well, one thing yes. about the the mouse too. Remember, I mean, one chapter we haven't talked about is the uh, the older uh, lesbian couple that, and one is just like obsessed with um, 
like wearing Mickey Mouse clothing or like, oh my like, god, that's such a weird little yes. I actually yeah. maybe no spoilers, but since we haven't talked about it, I would love to dive deep into that one. Maybe that'll be a po- Patreon only video. Ooh, because I think there's a lot of right. like Freudian elements in that one. Ooh, that's pretty. That spicy. I would love to talk about and that were confusing, and I would, I would like to talk about that. Not that I mean, we, we, I got nowhere to be, but um. Egressage also just talks about the Freudian elements, yeah. the sort of yeah. dream interpretation stuff with that. You know, she's like, I don't know, but, you know, if Freud were to say it, you know, she's being kind of like funny about it. She's like, listen, I got no horse in this race, but if Freud were to say anything, he would he would kind of say that it's a cock. And <laughs> Yeah, well, the, the, what at the very end of the chapter, they talk about uh, clitoral circumcision yeah, and yeah. how um, the one, the main, not the main, but one of the female partners her partner goes on like sexual escapades with men and i thought that there was definitely some freudian stuff going on there mm. <laughs> for sure but, and this is why ugressage is canceled <laughs> <laughs> yeah that one chapter i mean it, any association canceled. with freud is cancelable this right, point. Yeah. but i also think right like the the the, the disney and the sort of mickey mouseification right like that goes into this yeah you know question about commodification and like ob- like the creation of objects that are in fandom with meaning. yeah and fandom absolutely and sort of like you know yeah. getting these little and there, there was a moment i can't remember but you know she she specifically uses the phrase and talks about fetish objects right and trying to distinguish like objects that yeah exactly matt's pointing to his uh <laughs> toy story five background oh boy um <laughs> But but you know distinguishing between these these objects that we generally imbue or genuinely imbue with meaning and the ones that we sort of fetishize out of a out of some kind of habit or out of some kind of ritual, and and I think she's trying to draw a sort of implicit distinction between those two things because I think like I don't know I mean shit I don't know if you guys know people like this but I know fucking way too many people who are like adult literal Mickey Mouse hat wearing like go to Disney Is- like three times a year. Disney people. people. Disney people. That's a that's a whole genre of folks. Dude. And it's it's increasing. Dude. And I think that she's sort of making you know, I don't think she's necessarily making this point about Disney, but like making a point about um you know <laughs> um you know the difference between these kind of like fetish objects that we kind of use as kind of like sinks for meaning like wells for meaning that like i don't need i don't need any real meaning i have mickey mouse right and that's distinct from you know a photograph or something that your grandmother owned or like whatever it becomes this sort of idol that you (laughs) use as a like black hole for all of your own emptiness i was yeah it reminds me of a zizek's commodity fetishism right where he talks about but he also Mm -hmm. talks about like a an example where you know this guy has his um his wife dies and is from like breast cancer or something and he's seems to be totally fine like his friends are talking to him and he's totally okay and they're like wondering why he isn't you know distraught and crying and whatever and it turns out that he has this hamster from his that his wife bought and um the hamster died like 4 months later and that was his fetishized item mm-hmm. like all like he it was kind of you know Kind of reminds me of like a hoarder too. It's um, like John yes. Wick. <laughs> Go on. His wife died. It is a, yeah. is John Wick yeah. a hoarder? No, his <laughs> wife died, and he had the dog. 
that his wife left yeah. him. And I've never actually Rus- seen John Wick. The Russian guys kill the dog, and and then that's you know John Wick the pain set comes him off, to but the that surface. set him off. And then he's like, okay, I finally the last remaining fetish object is gone. So now I'm gonna kill a hundred plus people. And that's and that's Mickey Mouse for Americans. And that's Mickey Mouse. <laughs> I also think of I I would like to think of a. Uh, I, this was something I thought of when I was uh, going when I was uh, seeing a therapist. Uh, was uh, King the idea mental health is important. Everyone go see therapists. Right, and USSRI. this is not. This is not. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> CCCP, which is CC a uh, psychiatrist. Uh, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yes. Uh, this is not a. This is not again. This is not like a downtrodding of 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 seeking therapy, but just like the way I conceived of it a lot of the time, especially when it didn't feel like a lot of um, I don't know progress was being made, or it was just like sort of like chronic skipping record kind of thing. Was it felt like I was draining a chronic cyst, and it felt <laughs> it, it there just it was just a relief of pressure, but not an actual uh, you know. The, the shit was not being solved. And uh, that's also something I think of when I think of like the, what you were describing, like voids and fetish objects in which, in which to, to uh, deposit excess right. feeling and meaning uh, without ever really like solving the problem of, of, of why, why that keeps occurring. And, and that's the power of them, right? Like, and that's why people get so attached to, you know, these images, or, you know, Mickey Mouse or these, these objects is because like they know that even if they can't articulate it or they can't say it, that is where all of their meaning is. It's somehow in that. It's in that thing. It's, it's been deposited in that object and that object is sort of holding it for them. You know what I mean? Yes. And, and if they lose it, if it breaks, if it get, disappears, if they, you know, can't visit Disney every year or whatever it is. That, if someone that, criticizes it. Exactly. Then implicitly that meaning and all of that energy that they've invested in it, that will somehow dissipate too and with it their identity to some degree. Right, and that's national, or that's something as simple as Mickey Mouse. Yeah, yeah, or a photograph. But but I do think I do think she's making. I don't think I think she's trying to. I think she's trying to, like, you know, thread a needle between. Like I don't think she's saying Mickey Mouse is the same as the photograph. I think no, no. The, the photograph is the thing that is. Like, there's a difference between objects that like suck and hold meaning, and then there's a different, and then there's objects that generate and create meaning. And I think that the sort of like photographs and some of these items that she tends to find are mm. at the at the you know flea markets and stuff are generative rather than subtractive. I think yeah, I think you're right. I think there is a distinction between the two. I think maybe if you hold on to some childhood object like a Mickey Mouse or something that is a little more glaringly imposing on your emotions than a photograph would. But I also, I do think that she still is critical of the consummation of, and the hoarding of, of old photographs. I, I still, I still believe that. No, I, yeah, I think you're right. Matt, did you have yeah. a passage? Uh, yeah, I, I was just thinking about that, like, um, because I think there's like a sort of inverse proposition here. Um, which I think the photographs offer like a good, you know, example of, um, and this is sort of right before Alfred the Angel comes into play. But the uh, there's this whole segment where, uh, you know, Ugresic is talking about her friends and they how they sort of loosely relate to 
uh, tarot cards, and she's talking about t- they throw cards, quote unquote, and they 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 do the tarot, and it's kind of like sort of a joke, like kind of a you know ironic act by these educated you know women who have uh, who meet every now and again, and but also it's not, and she describes it this way. Um, Tarot was nothing other than a kind of alternative literature in which the strength of the text depended on the power of the interpreter and the imagination of the reader. So, kinds of flips it. It's, it's hell yeah, dude. And Gabe also underlined that. Um, we're so in sync. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, underline it with me. <laughs> Sync up. Sync up. Underline it, Daddy. If boys, if boys all live in the same apartment for long enough, they underline <laughs> the same text. Oh <laughs> and they, Holy shit. and they become in sync together, and then they form a boy band, boy band yeah. called In Sync. Holy fuck! A boar band. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, but the point being that, like, there's the inverse of what is it? It's like something is only as powerful. Some some things are powerful because they can meet whatever level of meaning both the interpreter and the people engaged with it want to give it. Right. Like there's no there's no limit to that. Yes. I don't know. That's not a distinctly different thing from like, uh, you know, the extent to which you can derive meaning from certain objects. But it's more. I was just trying to link it to what what you were describing with with like. Fetish objects and stuff. It's like these no, things will just will just continually meet like a goldfish growing in a bowl. You know, they'll just fill the size of their container, no matter what it is. Whatever you got to give it, it will meet that for you and become right. loom ever larger. Yes, and and therefore make it that much more difficult to let go of. You know, right? And it takes essentially in this in that story, which like I feel like we have not even conveyed the weirdness of yet. Like it's mm-hmm. them meeting as these college friends and doing the tarot cards, and then literally a literal angel shows up, and he's like, "Oh, I fucked up. I was supposed to prevent a car accident, and I didn't." And, and I feel bad. And I feel so bad I'm here now. And they're like, "What?" <laughs> and then he does like some random angel shit and lifts them off the ground. Um, and then gives he gives everyone other than the narrator a, a, a feather, and they forget the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but but anyway, it's basically an episode of it was a bit of a chapter about Chris Angel. That's how <laughs> I read it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yes, my <laughs> favorite minds with a bunch of magic. My favorite thing about the um, the tarot card section is that she just includes as its own paragraph this one sentence. They're talking about tarot cards and, you know, spiritual life and all that. And she just includes this one sentence and it's its its own separate paragraph. We considered horoscopes vulgar. We had nothing to do with them. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) That's right. That's a that's beyond the pale. And I was just I just thought that was so funny because, (laughs) you know, again, horoscopes is basic bitch shit. We do tarot here. Exactly. (laughs) This is we on some real witchy shit. Yeah. Um, um, I, I think I, we're winding down. I do want to maybe dive a little bit into the. You can't I just want to read do, one, one section of the uh, the my grandmother in heaven. Sec- I just want to read it, please, and relate it to yeah. Gene Stafford a little bit. Please. This is at the very beginning. Um, this is her describing her grandma. She was not tall. She had large, heavy breasts on a small, round body with narrow shoulders and a protruding belly. Her graying curly hair framed her bo- her broad face with its prominent 
Asiatic cheekbones. She had greenish eyes, slightly slanting, a vaguely absent look, like that of a seriously ill or, or very old. On her face, her smile seemed to take the place of an expression. She smiled bro broadly, obligingly, and for no reason. I didn't like her. Perhaps it was the, that smile without reason I didn't like, that e that ever-ready cordiality, that nodding of her head which made her gray curls quivering like springs. I felt that she wore the smile on her face as a kind of apology for existing at all. She humored people with that smile, as though why she existed was precisely what everyone was wondering. And this to jump ahead for one little last section, two pages later. I didn't like my grandmother, the way children dislike or like for no reason. I didn't succeed in loving her even, even later. And as though I had remembered that childlike dislike, I maintained it with childlike persistence even as an adult. Yeah. I just I really like that. Um, but yeah, it made me think of Jean Stafford a little bit. Just be able, being able to get in the mind of a child where she, you, you just like something rubs you the wrong way that you don't even totally understand. She captures childhood it. like really well and like her relation her her descriptions of her childhood and her I mean you know, childhood town where she lived with her mother and yeah. That is the downfall of um and I'm forgetting her name, but the sister in that story Molly. basically. Yeah, Molly. Just like hold a grudge like a motherfucker yeah yeah like and they accumulate and she's unable to deal with it the reason i thought i found this one just just as like uh depressing as as all the passages about her mom is that the grandma had just she had even less of a chance she was the first generation i think and she mm -hmm. um was even more torn down by the situation right. by life so that she couldn't, she couldn't, she didn't have the ability to even smile without showing what has happened to her and what life has done to her. And her grand, her grandchild just like hated her for it, just for being who she was and who she is, is someone affected by circumstances. So I, I just found it, ugh, very relatable, but also just horribly sad. Yeah. Yeah. She's reduced to. Again, yeah, like I was saying, like these these phrases of her mother's and stuff, and she even describes her mother as having a reductive uh, understanding of her mother. And Ugresich knows this, but just like that's what she has to work with, right. and so she can't help it. She doesn't like her grandmother. She understands that it's based off of pretty lacking data, but and yet it doesn't matter. Yep, doesn't matter. Sucks. Yeah. And I and I, I like how she said even later in life she didn't found find a love for her, <laughs> even when she understood these things about circumstance she still yeah. couldn't bring herself to do it. And I've and I've been there. Yep. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like, you know, uh, I think the description of maybe the section that I like felt most not. Uh, the, the sort of was the, the most distinct for me was her description of the party with her friends and then the description of her kind of running through them. I don't know enough about tarot to understand the meanings of the sort of like designations that she, she yeah. assigns to each of her friends. So it's like a group of college friends, these women who get together to do these tarot parties. And then this angel shows up and then they, they you know, forget all about it. But there's like some really um, 
sort of, and the title of that section is group photograph because she has this one picture that she thinks may have been taken that night, but it's all whited out and, and fucked up and it doesn't really show anything except like some vague outlines. And she thinks that the angel was in the picture and that's why it didn't turn out. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's, you know, just so many strange, again, this is the sort of magical realism element that we've mentioned where, you know, each of them takes the feather back to their house and does something to their, you know, home and does something with it and then forgets about it the next morning and is sort of surprised to see that they still have it. One woman eats it when she goes home in front of her husband and it sort of like disgusts him in this weird way. And then she winds up becoming pregnant um, relatively soon after. And as she's sort of like blessed by this angel figure. Um, and then she revisits these women during the war time and sort of talks through them as their sort of tarot analogs, which again, I don't understand, but I, what did, did, did y'all make anything of that section overall? Like it, was it just a, another sort of a way of getting into, you know, loss and memory and friendship uh, uh, or, you know, I don't know. I just, I, I, I kind of want to just talk about it a little bit briefly. That was kind of the, uh, the jack of the uh, the cards or something. Oh, that's a bad analogy, but it was, it kind of threw a uh, a wrench into what I believe the angels were for me. Um, it it added another another element to it that I was like, I just couldn't really decipher. It kind of turned my theory on its head a little bit. Like, what is the angel potentially getting one of them pregnant mean in terms of loss or memory or like a fall from grace i don't i don't really see a connection there so um, yeah i i don't know what you think gabe or matt but I, i'm kind of at a loss for it i i think ugressich acknowledges the angel as a device she made up um at some point to just be like i i bless my friends in my own w in my way with this fantastical element to the story um so I think she acknowledges that it, it is just a device. So, you know, it is just a device that she's using to describe, a, a, you know, a, a more grounded sensation that she can't give voice to as easily in any other way. And then I, I just think it's more like, yet again, you know, like the narrator, you know, Dubrovka, Ugresich is kind of, you're, you're, you're getting a sense of her via... Um, you know, the negative space around mm -hmm. her. And therefore, you know, once you've talked about family, you got to talk about friends. Like, close yes. friendships and relationships, you know, these are the ways in which you're going to be able to sort of define yourself because you're too close to yourself in a lot of ways. So, like, I don't know, like, the best the best method is to be like, here's how I'm... in. At, my friends, as reflections largely of myself, because I'm remembering them, uh, are the best ways in which to talk about me. And that's kind of how I. Th that's kind of how I thought. It's cute and it's not. You know right. what I mean? It's like yeah. th these aren't accurate in any way. Probably representations of these these other women. And I think Ugresich knows that. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I think I, I think I found that that section that you were mentioning, Matt, where she kind of acknowledges the angel device. She says. Um, 
uh, da, da, da. she's just sort of recollect, recollecting this. Perhaps that how it, that's how it was, and perhaps it was different. Perhaps invisible, incorporeal, and anonymous angels long to leave an imprint and reflection to have someone describe them. If that's how it is, then our Alfred, which was the name of the angel, certainly could not have counted on appearing to a Gabriel Garcia Marquez. He had appeared to me. And something else, the phrase, behind God's back, or where God said goodnight, is used to describe places forgotten by God. The first assumption is that he would not send angels, or at least not angels of substance, to places where he had decided to say goodnight. Perhaps that is how it was, and perhaps it was different. Who can tell? Angels were invented by grown-up people to make life more bearable. Writers are grown-up people who like inventing things. Right. That's why I gave them an angel, a little something to make life more bearable. And I know it has turned out feeble, but an angel is only as good as his writer. Still, just in case, I have left each of them a little feather so that real angels can find them in that terrible divine darkness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, yeah. I just had one more passage that I wanted to read. Please. That I just, you know, no, no convenient place to put it <laughs> in our conversation, but here it goes. Uh this is this is a sort of more direct reference to Yugoslavia and war. Um, it goes, The lords of war, the lords of dreams, the attraction of a neuromancy, of every kind of fortune-telling, all reading of the future, is not hidden in the text of the dream, but it, in its interpretation. In that sense, any text at all, including a recipe for a cheese souffle, may be read as a prediction of the future, or later as its fulfillment that is quite clear to fortune tellers and rulers emperors and their informers politicians and psychoanalysts which is why there are such close links between them you know i, I again it, that felt to me just struck me as something more close to the bone of of her making a, a, a large scale summary there right which because i think is a negative assessment of of that very phenomenon yes yep that's it for me. <laughs> well, you're out. Um, See ya. <laughs> three strikes and you're out. Bye. Thanks for playing. Um, do we do that? There's so many characters in this book. I don't know. Why don't know. we just we should just shoot, we should just do the narrator? I guess. Yeah. What about her mom? We could do maybe her mom. Yeah, we got maybe enough material for her, and you know what she is. Puff. 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 <laughs> so disrespectful sounding. After all this Guys, like heart rending shit, we're like we, Hufflepuff. By the way, welcome to the, the segment, the, the crowd favorite, the fan favorite segment, where uh, uh, we indulge our Harry Potter brains um, in a uh, exercise called We Literally Just Read Another Book, and therefore we're going to put the characters from that book into their Harry Potter houses. I can't wait to die, and if I'm lucky, somebody I've never met in once in my life and who's not even speaks my language is like, she's he's a Hufflepuff. They're <laughs> <laughs> like, cool. Talk about memory distorting reality. <laughs> oh my god! But she is. But she is. Her, the mom is. A, the mom is a Hufflepuff. The mom is a Hufflepuff. She's loyal. She's sentimental. She's, you know, I don't know. 
It's hard, it's hard to classify any of these characters for me because there's they are such victims of circumstance that it yeah. affected their personality. So like, it, it feels almost mean to do it to do it to a lot of them. So I think it's good no, really I, doing it to the two. No, I think that's a good point. I, I, like, I I think, yeah, this is the first the author's Ravenclaw. Like, oh yeah, she's a Ravenclaw. I think the author's Ravenclaw. She's Ravenclaw. and it's not just because she's an academic, but no, ruthless inquiry though is a thing. But yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. All right, well, that was easy. Um, scores? <laughs> scores. 4.1. In in tradi- tradition, I will go last here. 4.1. Easy. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I'm i going to say I might go a little higher than that. I mean, for me as a reader, this kind of hit all the, the marks that I like, but it was also a really challenging book to read for mm-hmm. me. It was like a perfect sweet spot for me at this moment in my reading career where it pushed my comprehension abilities while, you know, having literally literary elements that I really enjoy, like great characterizations. Um, It was one of the first, like, sporadic, you know, books that had a a lot of different sections that I really enjoyed. I usually don't like that. I'm kind of a simpleton and like my linear stories, but this definitely pushed me out of my boundaries in a good way. Um, But, yeah, great writing great passages great characterizations really beautiful writing overall um i'm gonna have to do 4.7 yeah yeah i mean i think uh i'm 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 in that ballpark too i think i'm on the i'm on the i'm on the other side of 4.5 so like you know again yeah i think it, it like you said paul it just it just worked like it was just a mix that 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 just worked perfectly and the balance was struck in a way that was like so effective for me and so affecting i teared up at parts of this book i like was you know like that part of that i read about her mother i almost teared up just reading it again now um so yeah i i'm gonna go uh just tipping over the 4.5 mark like 4.53 for me i'm changing can i change mine to 4.3 yeah you guys are fucking right (laughs) (laughs) hell yeah it's not just peer pressure i'm just a curmudgeon yeah yeah no i mean i'm I'm trying to be more curmudgeonly on in these scores in general but uh like there's some that i would probably change if i went back but i think this is a considered a considered judgment that that this rises this is this is this is definitely one of yeah this is uniquely good i i really like this a lot awesome yeah, I'm a little I'm a little polar with my scores usually, and uh, but I ha- I just had to take into account the b- other books we've read so far and how this one affected me. So it's got it's got to be up there. I mean, I almost liked it as much as the Mountain Lion, so it's got to be up to four point seven for me. Right Mountain on, Lion, right Mountain on. Lion, good. I'm glad you liked it, Paul, because I I was a little worried about the kind of like because I know like you said like you and it's not a it's not a whatever statement of value. It's just you you like a good story, and I was like nervous about how you would take the the writing style. Yeah, I mean, to, to be honest, the first maybe five innings of it, I uh, I was like, whoa, this is getting hard to get into. But sixth and seventh inning stretch, I really, <laughs> I really, it it hit a triple and then a home run inside the park. <laughs> Hell yeah. All right. Well, um, if you're listening still at this point in the episode, you will love our Patreon. Um <laughs> 
<laughs> so uh, go it's over this, there. but more. It's this, but more and less also somehow sure. uh, in the sense that there's shorter videos generally. But um, go check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash spinecracker. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Um, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. All that. MySpace. Snapchat. Yeah. Not GeoCities. GeoCities. <laughs> Yeah, what is the what, what's the dumbest social media platform that we could make Vero. an account on? Okay, I don't even know what that is. So oh, there yeah, you go. Vero. Zack Snyder is on it. What is? Oh, okay, <laughs> it's like an Instagram knockoff that took off for like two months and uh, then died. All right, well we're on that. We're gonna be on that. We're gonna be on. <laughs> we're gonna be on whatever the conservative one was that got shut down. We're gonna be on <laughs> Live um, Journal. Live Journal. We're gonna have Live Journal. We're gonna have Zangas. Yeah. Go follow us everywhere, <laughs> wherever you get your social media information. And um, any last words, boys? Good night and good luck. Great book. Read this book. Um, good night. Bye. Good night and good luck. <laughs>